So the question that we've been dealing with for the past few weeks is if you had only one thing to be known for, if there was only one thing that you were known for, or if there was one thing above all other things that you were known for, what would you want it to be? What would you want your one thing to be? Uh, as I was thinking about the question for today, you know, what do people know that you love? I think most people around me know that I love computer nerd stuff which is kind of a little bit annoying to me because I also want people to know that I, I love God. I also want people to know that I love God's word. And so in this context, I assume that you guys already know that about me because I'm, I'm the pastor who's trying to teach you these things and, and all that stuff. But I frequently talk to people in my life about computer nerdery and the different things like that. And so it's one of those things that makes me sort of question, am I communicating with my life everything that I want to? Because honestly, if there's just one thing that I wanted my life to communicate, I want my life's one thing to be the same one thing that was Jesus's one thing. And that one thing, according to Jesus, is specified in Mark chapter 12. We looked at it for the past few weeks. I'll show it to you again. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noting that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he keeps going. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus is taking these two ideas, love God and love your neighbor, and he's combining them into one command. And for the past two weeks, I've been trying to show you that loving God really is loving your neighbor and vice versa, that loving God and loving your neighbor are intrinsically linked with each other. But that simplifies things in a way that also misses something. You see, when Jesus said, love the Lord your God as the first and greatest commandment, he starts with a list. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that means that Jesus wants us not just to love in sort of the tangible behavior sorts of ways that loving your neighbor might produce. Jesus also wants us to love in an emotional heart way to love our Heavenly Father that way. Now, as I said earlier, that's, that's weird for me because I was raised in sort of a church environment where you showed up, you sat in your pew, you kept quiet until the hymns were being played with an organ on one side of the room and a piano on the other side of the room, and we did the songs, and then we were done with the songs, and then we sat there and we listened to my dad talk for a while, and then we would go. And I told you this before, I always thought, man, if we could just skip the music, we'd be out of here so much sooner. You know, that whole musical thing to me was just a waste of time. The choir up front, the organ playing, the hymn singing, the whole nine yards. It was just not interesting to me whatsoever. And then some Sunday nights we would show up and there was a dude who would bring his trombone and he would get the entire Sunday night for himself. And he would get up on stage and he would share a little devotional or something. And then he'd play a song on his trombone. And then he would share another little devotional and he'd take requests from the crowd 
loud and we would yell out hymn numbers and he would play the hymn and we would sometimes sing along with it. But it was just this happy little guy with his trombone doing his thing. And man, I liked that guy. I thought he was, I thought he was fun and he like enjoyed being there. But I didn't enjoy the trombone. And so the whole night, I was just waiting for a time for me to build up enough courage to yell out 698 because it was the only song in the entire hymnal that I, I thought was partially cool. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is because it's from the deep 70s and it is not cool. But I mean, it's, it's an okay song. It's just not cool as a song. And so, so I'm not, we're not even going to get into that. But I was raised in sort of this environment where emotional response response to God was just absent. It wasn't even talked about as a discouraged thing. It was just absent. And I think that goes a lot along with the way I and other people I know kind of feel about emotions related to God. We give ourselves a whole wide range of excuses why emotions with God sometimes shouldn't mix. And sometimes, I remember when I was younger, it was the, the music with a beat, oonch, 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 whatever it was. If the music had a beat, then it had too much of sort of that emotion in it. And so that was out. And so having a theological understanding, a doctrinal focus on your relationship with God can say, okay, we don't need any of that emotional stuff getting in the mix. We're just going to be intellectual about our relationship with God. I know not every church was like that. It was just a particular church kind of culture in which I was raised. But there's another thing that's working against us when it comes to an emotional relationship with God. And I think it applies mostly to men, but also to women, where emotions and emotional responses to things feel weak, or depending on your perspective, feel feminine. They feel like, you know, it's, it's the, I mean, this is going to sound completely sexist, because it is sexist, but it's this idea that says, okay, so showing emotions with other people in the same room, that's girly. You know, that's, that's a feminine sort of thing to do. And so I don't know about you, but maybe this is just sort of my, you know, messed up background or whatever. But I got this idea that showing emotions was as bad as having emotions. And that kind of thing that when you bring it into the context of church, it's like, no, I want to be intellectual and I want to be active. And listen, Christians do all kinds of things to help us bypass the emotional life that we should have, emotional health. I'll give you one quick example. You might have heard this phrase before, I have to love them, but I don't have, I don't have to like them. You've heard that phrase before? You know, I have to love that person, but I don't have to like them. What that means is I have to do something that um, someone somewhere sometime can, can possibly define as love, but I hate their guts. Oh, I can't say hate. That's a bad word. So I don't like their guts. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Christians have this sort of weird mentality that says love can be separated out as just an action. In fact, you might have seen the shirts where it would say love is a verb. Or the shirt where it would say, love is an action. And don't get me wrong, that's true. Love is an action thing. But if it's only an action, then you can't really call it love. If it's only an action, there are other verbs that are better suited for that. 
You see, when it comes to love, you might be familiar. The Greek language has four different words for love. And the English language uses the one word love in a wide variety of different contexts. But you can really simplify it down into two major concepts. Two major concepts sort of are love. One major concept is desire. It's this idea that I want to be with a thing or a person. Desire. That's one aspect of love. But it's not the only aspect of love because you only feel desire when you are not with. Once you are with whatever it is that you desire, love transforms into something different, a a kind of joyful satisfaction of just being with that other person, of just being with that other thing or experiencing that thing that you love. So love has this one aspect of desire and satisfaction, desire and joy that's one aspect of love. And then there's another aspect of love, another kind of thing that they feed into each other, and this one we would call sacrifice. And it basically boils down to if the thing that I love is in danger or under threat or possibly has a need, then I'm going to sacrifice some of myself to meet the need or the danger or the threat that this thing that I love is facing. And so now you can see that there's a a desire to be with, a satisfaction when you're with, and also a desire to spend of myself to solve on behalf of. There's There's a desire, there's a sacrifice. And these two concepts are in no way feminine. These two concepts are in no way weak. Ask any dude who's listening to country music and you will find all kinds of things that they desire and all kinds of ways that they sacrifice for their truck or their dog or their gun or their their wife or their child or whatever it is. There are all kinds of ways that guys might make some sort of desire statement or some sort of joyful satisfaction statement or some, I mean, you, you want the truck, you buy the truck, you drive the truck, you fix the truck. I mean, it's all of that stuff stuff, right? It's love, and no one is ashamed. No one is ashamed to tell someone of the love that they love, if they love it. Because once you get to the place where you're okay with the fact that you desire this thing, and, you're, and you feel satisfied when you're with this thing or this person, and when you're willing to sacrifice for this thing or this person, it's the next logical step that you express it, that you share it with the person that you love, and you share it with the people around you. And listen, it is not, by all means, it is in, not in the slightest way feminine to paint a giant R in the middle of your chest and stand in a crowd with a bunch of your friends as you sacrifice your own dignity to express your loyalty to Purdue, right? It's not an intrinsically female thing to do such a thing. Can we just admit that? Now, this is not about being weak or strong or feminine or manly or whatever. It is not about any of those things. It is about this one thing. We all have our own excuses to not love rightly. We all have our own excuses to not love rightly. There might be a person in your life that you don't love because of, and you have a reason. There might be a a God that you have been told you should love, but something is blocking that. Today, I want to start 
by just asking you to get rid of the myth. To get rid of the myth that somehow an emotional love for God is inappropriate. To get rid of the myth that somehow sharing a love for God with others is inappropriate. To get rid of the myth that expressing or feeling an emotional connection to God is somehow wrong. And I want you to embrace the possibility. So today, what we're going to do is I'm going to walk you through three basic steps. How to develop an emotional connection, a deeply emotional connection to your Heavenly Father. Three simple things. And they come each one of them in two halves that I need to walk you through. The first one is this. It's an action. You should seek it. If you want to have a love connection with God, the first thing that you need to do is you need to honestly seek it. You need to say to yourself, it is something I want. I've told you this story a number of times because it's a massively formative story in my own life, but it's worth me telling again because some of you haven't heard it and those of you who have heard it before, maybe today my story will help you take another step in your journey or help someone else take a step in their journey. When I was a kid, of course, you know this, I was raised in the home of a pastor. My dad was a pastor. My mom was the school teacher at the Christian school that I attended. And so as a result, I was just steeped in Christianity. And one of the things I knew more than anything else, as you should, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's this one song that I learned as a really little kid. It goes, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. And I even could play it on the piano. One finger. Dun, 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 dun. And my mom would listen to me play the song and listen to me sing the song. And she was just so tickled pink. She loves to tell me the story of the times when she was hearing me as a little kid singing the song. The thing she didn't know is that I didn't mean it. Every time I sang it and every time I played it, I was doing it because I didn't understand it. And I was confused about this massively important command that God would say, love me with all your heart, and I was miserably failing at it because I couldn't even do that. How do you love someone you've never seen? How do you love someone who's an idea in your head? The promises have been told to you, but I hadn't experienced anything about God. God hadn't shown up to me. He hadn't whispered into my ear. I came to faith when I was three years old. That was too young to have any sort of like profound spiritual experience in church. I didn't enjoy the church experience whatsoever. And you know, it was just, it was just study the Bible because pastor's kid and going to Christian school. And it was this song telling me I'm supposed to love God. And I kid you not, my emotional life as a kid was only two emotions. Emotion number one was self-interested ADD. Just whatever's next, I'm all into. You know, just, just hyper, I'm into that. Emotion number two, depression. I don't know if it was like a clinical depression or not. All I know is that every now and then, around two times every year, especially once I got like 10 years old, around two times every year, I would come face to face with this reality that God wanted one thing from me, love. And I had no idea what that meant. And so I felt bad. It wasn't exactly guilt. It was just 
this deep sort of sadness. I don't know if my parents noticed it and they never mentioned it to me, but like two times every year I'd go through around a two week long period where I was just in this funk of feeling not really guilty, but definitely sad that I was supposed to have this relationship with God that all these other people were talking about hearing God's voice or, or feeling God's love or whatever it was. And I didn't have that connection. It went all the way through my early years until freshman year in high school, the the fall of my freshman year in high school, I was at this place where I was just completely at my wit's end. I was thinking, I am supposed to know what love is. I don't even know what it means to emotionally love my family. I don't know what it means to emotionally love God. I was just in this, this depressive sort of state. And I, my heart really connected with a psalm, a phrase in a psalm. Psalm 42, verse 11, says this. The writer isn't David, it's the sons of Korah. We don't know who they are, but it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And by the time I was a freshman in high school, like I knew that people did praise things, and I knew that emotions were part of the Christian experience. I just knew that they weren't part of my experience except for this one emotion of being downcast. Not that one yet. Uh, this one emotion of just being downcast. This idea that I'm just just. What's wrong with me? And so I prayed. And I prayed and I said, God, I don't know what the deal is. But I'm now at this place in my life where all I know is I don't know what it means to have a personal, loving relationship with you. I don't get it. And so I made a couple commitments at that point in time. I prayed. I said, God, I'm making a couple commitments. Commitment number one. I was going to not say, dear Jesus, at the beginning of my prayers. I was going to start saying, Heavenly Father. Why? I don't know. It's just one of my commitments to be like, I need to grow up and I need to start referring to God as my Father because He loves me, at least He says He does, and I need to begin to step into that. And so I was going to start praying. I said, God, I'm going to start calling you Heavenly Father. And I said, God, number two, if you open a door for me of opportunity, I'm going to walk through it. Because I don't know how I'm going to get from where I am now to where I want to be. And where I want to be is to have some sort of like loving connection with my Heavenly Father. I don't know how to get there. So God, if you open a door, I'm going to walk through it. And then thirdly, I was like, and you can have my life all over again. We can start over from scratch. Well, what happened is a couple weeks later, I was in chapel in my school. Because my school, Christian school, we did chapel. And they were doing the thing that they did every single week in chapel. They were up front and they were singing songs. And I was like, man, if we could just skip past the songs and get to the speaker, then we'd be out of here sooner. But this day, something tugged on my heart and it said to me, just in the slightest sort of idea way, this is an opportunity. This moment right now, this song moment is an opportunity. And I was like, ah. I'd made this commitment. If God gives me an opportunity, if he opens a door, I got to walk through it. So I was like, okay, fine. The opportunity is singing a song. I have to do it. I said I would do it. I'm going to do it. So I started literally just singing out loud. And the song that I was singing was a song that has these exact words in it from Psalm 42, verse 1. 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, God. It was the same psalm. So my soul thirsts for you, God. My soul pants for you, my God. When can I go and meet with God? And there was something that happened in my soul at that moment. And this, you have to hear this. If I had stayed in the reluctance mode, the thing that God was doing to reveal his love for me never would have entered my heart. But it was when I opened myself up and said, okay, fine, I'm going to go ahead and walk through this door. And I start singing, which means I had to pay attention to the words a little bit. And I saw the words that I was singing and heard myself saying them. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is me literally in scripture. At the time, I didn't even know that the why so downcast is the same chapter as the I thirst for you. I didn't even know that, but God knew that. And he was like, this is where your heart is. This is where you are. What you need and what you long for is a relationship with me. And he's like, you're not the first. There have been other people who have gone before you who have longed for a relationship with me, longed for a deep connection with me, and I'm good with that. It's as if God was saying to me in that moment, the longing is just the first step of loving. Because after all, isn't one aspect of love the desire? Isn't that one of the first aspects of love that we were talking about? It was in that moment when I began to realize, oh my goodness, all of this longing that I've had is really connecting me to a God who's paying attention to me, who's ready to answer my prayers, who's ready to meet me on the other side of the door that I walk through, who's ready to say, yes, here I am. And so what I want to encourage you at the very beginning of this whole idea of how do I develop a deeper love for God, I want you just to know this. If you seek it, like everything else God promises. If you seek it, he will meet you there. God wants to meet you there in your heart. God made you. He gave you your heart. And he wants to meet you there. It's not the kind of thing where an emotional love for God is something outside of the norm of who you were made to be. God's the one who designed you. He's the one who makes you love pizza as much as you love your sports team. He's the one who makes you love the person in your life. He's the one who, makes, who gave you the heart that built all of that love into you. He knows you and your love, and he wants to meet you there. Now, That's just a Bible passage in my personal story. But I think you might need another step. It's not just enough to seek it and understand that God plans to meet you there. I want you to take the next step. And the next step is to believe it. I just made a promise to you. I made a promise to you that when you seek God, you will find him. I made a promise to you that when you go after God from your heart, he will meet you there in your heart. I made that promise to you, but you have to believe it. Because it's not until you get to the place where you start believing it that you're willing to do anything about it. And so I want to take you to a story. A story that uh, I think is just difficult for us to grasp. It's a story called The Prodigal Son. 
You've heard it before, maybe. It's really the story of two sons. I'm going to read you a small portion of it, but I'll just remind you of the story, how it goes. There's a a man who's wealthy. He's worked his whole life to develop his wealth, and he owns fields, and he's got employees. He's got a bunch of people that are working for him, and he's got these two sons. And his one son is just fed up that his dad is still alive. He's like, Dad, if you just would kick it, then I could get your money, and I could have my freedom. He doesn't say those words. What he says is, Dad, how about you give me my inheritance now? Now, it's one thing for a person, for a kid, to come up to his parents and be like, hey, I want some money. It's another thing for the kid to say, hey, I want you to read your will to me now. And then whatever it is that you were going to give me when you're dead, let's do it now because (laughs) I'm gone. This was literally the son saying to the dad, you might as well be dead now, but you're not, so give me your money. Complete disdain for the relationship. But the father, for whatever crazy reason, decides to do it. He takes his wealth, he splits it in half, and he gives half of it to this son who goes off and squanders it. He just wastes it, parties with it, until he's finally completely paid up. He's completely spent it all. It's all gone. And there off in the foreign land, far away from his father, he's there doing the only job he can find, which is to clean some pig stalls, which for the Jewish people would have just been repulsive to even hear the idea that there was a person from their community who is now cleaning a pig stall. It's just repulsive. And so now here's this son and he's And the passage tells us he comes to his senses. Let me show you this. It's in Luke chapter 15. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So here, he's come to his senses. He's like, okay, if I go back to my dad, I won't be in pig slop anymore. If I go back to my dad, even his slaves are treated well. So if I go back to my dad and just, you know, do the slave thing, be like, dad, I'll just be one of your hired workers. But here's the amazing thing. Some of you know this part of the story, I'm sure. It says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you suppose the son had taken a shower? From all that pig slop and all that journey? The picture you have of this dad is a picture of a dad who doesn't care that you wasted his money who doesn't care that you wanted him dead, who doesn't care that you're covered in manure, who doesn't care that you've been away for far too long, who doesn't care that you didn't trust him enough to come back earlier, who doesn't care about any of the other stuff. The only thing the dad cares about is you're here with me now. A dad who sees him from far off is a dad who's been 
watching for him. A dad who runs a long distance to get him is a dad who says, I will never make you come all the way to me. Jesus tells you this story because he wants us to know what the Heavenly Father is like. And the Heavenly Father loves us so much that from a distance has just been waiting. And he doesn't care that we've turned our backs on him. And he doesn't care that we have wasted all of the opportunities he's brought to us. And he doesn't care that we are covered in slop. All of that stuff can be solved. All of that stuff can be taken care of. And all of that stuff is meaningless. What the dad wants is to have you back with him. The father's love for us is something unimaginable. That's why the rest of that story has the older brother show up and he's like, Dad, you should do something to punish your younger son. He did all this bad stuff. And the, the, the older brother thinks it's all about the, the things that have been done. And the dad says, no, you don't get it. Your, my son was dead and now he's alive. In other words, he was gone, but now he's here. In other words, I desired him. And I... I'm now satisfied that he's with me and I will sacrifice anything I have to sacrifice in order to meet his needs. That's why John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's why the scripture is filled with times when God is proving his love to us. That's why in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still covered in muck, that's when Christ died for us. See, the idea that God loves us is fundamental. In John chapter 15 it says this, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus sacrificed himself because he and his heavenly father loved you that much, loved us that much. And so I ask you, if you want to understand God's love, if you want to feel love for God, if you want to have an emotional connection with God, it starts with seeking it, but at some point in your life, you have to just simply believe it. Yes, God has proven it over and over again. Yes, God proves his love over and over again. And I understand for you and me that might be difficult because you've been through some hard stuff You've been through some bad times. And there have been some times in your life where you wondered, man, because of this thing that's going on in my life, is it possible that God still loves me? Because of this hardship that I'm facing, is it possible that God still loves me? Because you've got this idea and I've got this idea that if God really loved us, he would want me to constantly be wealthy, healthy, and sleeping on the most amazing pillow in the world while I'm drinking the most amazing thing in the world and I'm experiencing the most amazing uh, experiences in the world. We think that if God were somehow, if he actually loved us, he would just simply pamper us our entire lives. But you haven't done that to your children, if you have children, and your parents didn't do it to you, 
And that's just simply not the way the world works. You spoil someone and they're spoiled. We all know that. But God, your loving Heavenly Father, is willing to go to the cross and die through Christ to lift you up. At some point in our lives, we have to just simply accept and believe that God really does love us. But that might be difficult for you. And for you today, you might be in one of these places where on one hand, maybe it's the, I haven't felt God love me. Maybe for you, you're in one of these places where it's like, okay, uh, it's just an intellectual thing for me. I know, I know God loves me, and so everything about my relationship with God is just intellectual. I have it all in my tight little box. And for some of you, it's all obligation. You know, I, I know I'm supposed to love God, and so I do all the activities that feel like they should probably check off the love box. I'm going to read my Bible on a regular basis. I'm going to pray in a particular way. I'm going to go to church. All these. I'm going to do all the duties all the responsibilities that I need to to prove to God that I love him because that's how, you, that's how you prove to people that you love him, right? You just do everything you think they ever want you to do, right? That's, that's how you prove to him. And so we got this. Some of you are in the, I don't feel it. Some of you are in the, well, I just have to think it. Some of you are, I just have to keep doing it. And some of you, I gotta be honest with, with you, some of you are just in fear mode where you're like, no, my main relationship with God is just fear, I know God is big, I know he's huge, and I'm scared of him. And one of these days he's going to judge me and I don't know what he's going to say. And so I'm just, I'm just in this place of fear. And it doesn't matter where you are naturally with all of that. I want you to take a step. I want you, if you have sought, and if you are beginning to believe I want you to risk. I want you to take a love risk. You used to do this back when you were in middle school. You wrote on a piece of paper, do you like me? And you had two check boxes. Some of you were aggressive and you gave it to the person directly. Some of you did not sign your name on it. You said, do you love, and then you wrote your name and you gave it to your friend to give to the other person anonymously. And then frequently you got back a third checkbox that said, maybe, and they had checked that, and now you're confused, and you don't know what's happening, but you're working through a third party here, and so now you're telling your friend, well, go ask them if they really do care for me, if they really do like me. But some point, every one of us, I believe, some point in our lives, we had to take at least an interpersonal risk to go up to another human being and be like, do you like me? In whatever words you used, it might have been, hey, you want to go get some coffee? Or it might have been, hey, you want to go with me to the basketball game? Or hey, do you want to come over to my house and play video games? I don't know what it has ever been for you, but at some point in your life, you have taken a risk. And you know, you know, when the risk pays off, it is just so good. It doesn't matter if they said yes to come over to your house to play video games. It doesn't matter if they said yes to go to the prom with you. It doesn't matter if they said yes to marrying you. It doesn't matter if the other person says yes when you've taken that risk. It's just like, yes, that is just exactly what I needed at this moment. And I want to ask you to do that with God. 
And so I'm going to share with you one of the most powerful stories, I think, in the New Testament. It's from Luke chapter 7. Now, what's interesting about this story is that in all four of the Gospels, this doesn't happen very much. Very few stories show up in every one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all four of the Gospels, there is a story of a woman who takes some perfume and pours it all over Jesus. What's interesting, though, is that in three of them, Matthew, Mark, and John, we know who the woman is. Her name is Mary. She is the sister of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus, a man who was sick, who died, and Jesus rose from the grave. We are told near Jesus' day of death, as he was approaching Jerusalem, some people in Lazarus and Mary's hometown invited Jesus over to the house in Bethany. And Lazarus was there. You know, dead man now back alive, having dinner with everybody else. Amazing. But Mary, Lazarus's sister, overwhelmed with love for Jesus and gratitude for what Jesus had done for her and her family. She comes into the room and she takes this perfume and pours it all over Jesus. And there's a big to-do about how that money could have been used to give to the poor. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of a person who's expressing love for Jesus. But what's interesting is that this, this story happens twice. It happened at the end of Jesus' ministry with Mary. But it happened earlier in Jesus' ministry with someone else. And Luke decides to tell us that story. All four Gospels have a story of a woman pouring perfume on Jesus. But the details are different enough that we know that it happened at least twice. And Luke gives us this version. I want to read it to you. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, you have to know that this is an insanely risky thing for her to do. She is a woman who is going to enter a dinner with a Pharisee and the most famous rabbi of their day, Jesus. She is a woman who is going to enter into this strange room in a strange house owned by a religiously significant individual who has the authority and the power to have her killed for her sins. Everybody knows her sins because of her sins, because it calls her a, a person who has lived a sinful life. We're thinking probably it was prostitution. And so as a result, since her sin was so well-known by people, then this Pharisee could have had her arrested and eventually stoned and killed. That's one risk. There's another risk, though. She has no idea 
all the power that Jesus has. She has seen this guy heal lepers. She has seen this guy do all kinds of miraculous things. And she, this sinful woman, is coming up to Jesus. And she's not sick. She's not injured. She's not wounded. She's not saying, oh, Jesus, would you heal me? She's not doing any one of these things that could elicit compassion from Jesus. But she's coming into the room nonetheless. You have to understand what a big risk this was. And an expensive risk, too. See what shows up next. It says, as she stood behind him. As she stood behind him. She sneaks into the room. Jesus is reclining at the table. That means he's like laying down because they didn't use chairs and tables. They had low tables and, and, and like uh, bean bags on the ground. And so Jesus is like reclining. His feet are out. And she sneaks into the room behind him. And if she's behind Jesus, the Pharisee can see her. Jesus is looking at the Pharisee. And you can imagine the disdain on that Pharisee's eyes. I can imagine she sneaks into the room with her eyes down. She sneaks into the room as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume, get this, on his feet. This is so weird. Because in the other story, when Mary anoints Jesus, she pours perfume all over Jesus' head, from head, head down. Because that's where you anoint a person. If you're going to anoint a person, you put it on their head. You put the, the fancy thing, the perfume, the whatever it is on their head. You're not going to waste the most expensive perfume in the world just on someone's dirty, smelly feet that are then going to get dirty and smelly in the next two minutes after they leave this building. But for her, that's as far as she's going to get. She's too embarrassed and too ashamed to even get past his ankles. She's all the way down at the feet, just pouring out literally her love. Keep going. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. If this man were a prophet, man, he'd, he'd do something. Simon, the Pharisee in this moment, realizes that Jesus is a nobody. He's no one to pay attention to. He's not a prophet. He's not a real person from God. A real person from God wouldn't have anything to do with this. It's in that moment that the Pharisee is like, okay, fine, we're done with Jesus. We'll finish our meal. He'll go home, and that'll be the last of it. Uh, But Jesus catches him. Immediately, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. What a weird, arrogant kind of phrase. He's hiding. It's so passive-aggressive. He's hiding this thing. Oh, he's not a prophet. He doesn't know who this woman is. He's not connected with God. He doesn't have anything going on in his life. I can reject him. Oh, tell me, teacher, what do you have for me? And Jesus just keeps going. He says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii, uh, denarius is a one day's wage. So imagine 500 days of work is one of the guy's debt. 
and the other guy is 50 days of work. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, now you have judged correctly. Finally, you have made a good judgment because we know that his previous judgment was not good. And we'll get back to that one. But this judgment is good. This judgment is correct. And so then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Yes, he sees this woman. Of course he sees this woman. He sees this woman better than Jesus sees this woman. But Jesus says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And oh my goodness, Simon realizes Jesus saw me. Jesus saw what I didn't do for him. Jesus says, you didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's a little thing that's going on here that um, scholars and pastors have for a very long time been confused by. Scholars and pastors have for a very long time been confused by a particular little phrase in the verse. Before I show you the phrase, I want to highlight for you something that is inconsistent with what happened here. And Jesus will do this sometimes with his parables. He will sometimes give a parable that you think you kind of understand the point, and then he'll do an extra twist at the end of it. And in this case, something weird is going on. What's weird is that in the story, the men are forgiven, and then the question of love is raised. Forgiveness first, and then the question of love is raised. These men are forgiven. Then Jesus says, which of the men will love the money lender more? Well, the one who is forgiven more, right? Forgiveness first, then love. That's what the story says. But the situation here is backwards. The last thing Jesus says to the woman is you're forgiven. That's at the end of the story. And her love has been there from the beginning of the story. And so what scholars are doing is they just, they just, do, they just get confused. They're like, well, we can't, we can't at all deal with this. And so in fact, let me show you what it used to be translated as. The translation that I just read you uses the phrase, as her love has shown. Jesus says, she has been forgiven as her love has shown, as if her forgiveness happened previously, and now she's in the room to show love, which implies that maybe yesterday Jesus was walking along the street, and the sinful woman came up to him, and the sinful woman was like, I'm a sinful woman. And Jesus said, I forgive you. And then she's like, oh, I've been forgiven. And then she loves him so much that she comes into the room the next day to do this perfume thing. And it's just, you know, know, because she's already been forgiven that she loves Jesus so much, she's going to do this perfume thing. Logically, it makes no sense. Historically, it doesn't make any sense. Linguistically, it doesn't make any sense because the original translation, if you translate this according to the order of the words in the original Greek, it goes like this from the New American Standard. It says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much. 
The word for is a word that means there's a cause and effect relationship. Her sins are forgiven because she loved much. Scholars and Bible preachers don't like this because it sounds like this woman has earned her forgiveness. It sounds like this woman has done something to to convince Jesus that she was worthy of forgiving her. And it's this idea of whether, does God forgive us on grace or does God forgive us based on our works? And so there are people who are really, really scared about this verse. And they're like, no, we have to translate it differently. We can't just leave it the way it is. We have to translate it differently because we need to make sure people know that for Forgiveness comes before love. Forgiveness, then love. Forgiveness, then love. That's what we have to, we have to convince people of that. And so we have to keep that going on in this paradigm. But that's not what's going on in the story. What happens in the story is a woman who is absolutely at her wit's end and she has nothing left to her life. And it's either kill herself or let someone else abuse her to death or finally come to Jesus. And she's like, this is all I have. I'm going to take every last shred of dignity, every last thing that I have possibly in my life, I'm going to pour it all into perfume that I will then pour all over Jesus and I don't even make it past his ankles. And she's just in the room and she's like, I have nothing, but I'm just going to love you. And Jesus says, yes, because here's the thing you need to know. Jesus doesn't forgive her because of the perfume. He doesn't forgive her because of the hair. He doesn't forgive her because she washed his feet. He forgives her because of her love. And if you recall, the greatest commandment ever given is love God with all your heart. Throughout Scripture, this is how it works. It's not forgiveness and then love, or love and then forgiveness. It is always a God who has a hair trigger on forgiveness. And he is ready to just dump it out at any moment he gets any love from you. He loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner, while all of us were still sinners. You know what that means? You have to understand this. You know what that means? That means God is ready to act towards you as if you are forgiven before you are forgiven. And he loves you so much that as soon as you respond to him, it's like, of course you're forgiven. It's a simultaneous moment. It's a moment where this woman comes to give Jesus love and in his heart, Jesus already has forgiven this woman because he just loves her. Why would he not forgive her for anything that she's ever done? She doesn't love and then get forgiveness. She loves with the forgiveness because Jesus is always ready to forgive. And that's what I want you to know. I want to ask you to take a love risk with Jesus because you got to know that he will come through. And I don't know how he's going to come through. I don't know when he's going to come through. And I don't know what come through means for you. 
I know that for some of us, come through, we think means solve my problem. And sometimes he's going to solve your problem. For some of us, come through might just mean at the end of time, when I meet him face to face, he's going to give me that hug and he's going to say, man, you went through a lot of stuff, but I'm so proud of you. Maybe that's what it's going to be. And it's not going to be until the end. Or maybe it's going to be today when you say, Jesus, I'm just going to I'm just going to pour out my heart a little bit more towards you. I'm just going to pour my desire a little bit more towards you. And maybe some moment today, he's going to be like, I'm here with you. There's this psalm that has become one of my life verses, Psalm 37.4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Love, delight, desire, long for, be satisfied with, be ready to sacrifice for, love God deeply from your heart, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desire is to have him, you will get him. The one who seeks him will find him. Ask and the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be opened. Jesus is ready You don't have to sneak up to him. You don't have to stay down at his feet. You can just be like, Jesus, I'm here. I'm ready for you. Do you know why? Because he is literally always ready for you. One of the final most impressive lines that Jesus uh, gets quoted a lot of by saying is Revelation 3.20. This is Jesus in a vision to John for a particular group of people who need a relationship with him. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Do you realize something? Jesus was a prophet. And he knew exactly what sin that woman had been, done, had been doing. In fact, later on in that story, he said, her sins, which are many. He knew her sins. He knew her sins. Yes, he was a prophet. But guess what? Simon said, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. And guess what? If he were a prophet, which he is, he would also have known what kind of man Simon was. And he did. Simon, the judgmental Pharisee. Simon, the person who could not have any love in his heart for this other woman. Simon, this person who is just simply on his own high horse. Simon, this person who thought that he was so important that the rabbi of the universe, the best teacher ever, the God-made man, should come over to his house, have his food, and sit at his table. That is such an arrogant man that 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 Pharisee would think Jesus should come to his house. How ludicrous. And he asked, and Jesus said yes. Because, see, that's all it takes. Jesus doesn't care what your story is, what your situation is, what your background is, what your current situation. Jesus just wants to love you. And so I'm asking you to take that risk and love him back. Open your heart to him, whatever that means for you today, whatever that means for you this week. And say, I want to I risk. 
I'm going to sing that song a little bit louder. I'm going to, I'm going to read this passage with a little more intensity. I'm going to talk to my friends with a little bit more enthusiasm about the experience I've had with, with my Savior. I'm going to live into this. I'm going to love him from the heart. Let me invite you to take just a moment in quiet reflection and ask God in this moment to either help you understand his love more or to help you express your love more. That those two things might meet in the middle and we might be people who love God with all our hearts. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.